0: Grand Touring Motorsports started as a social group of car enthusiasts, but we've expanded into all sorts of motorsports disciplines, and we want to share our stories with you. Years of racing, wrenching, and motorsports experience brings together a top-notch collection of knowledge and information through our podcast, Fix. Boulders, trees, mud, ruts, and sleeping under the stars. That's right. That's the recipe for off-roading. And tonight, we return to The Road Less Traveled with our special guest and former GTM member, David Drew Andrews. And as always, I'm your host, Brad. And I'm Eric. So let's roll. Welcome to the show, Drew. Hey. So, Drew, back when we
1: met, you know, back in the before times, you had a Pontiac GTO. We used to sport around in that thing. And you were big into sports cars, drag racing, and all sorts of stuff. But how did you end up in off-roading?
2: I'm from North Carolina. And North Carolina has a massive off-road community down there. And I'm from Western North Carolina in a little town called Black Mountain, which is a suburb of Asheville. My dad had me in that bad boy in a a baby seat going off-road in the woods on 6,000-foot mountains. (laughs) Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So I'd say I got into it at a really young age.
1: But you were driving around in sports cars for the longest time so how did you make the transition back to off-roading
2: well i tell people i never really left off-roading i still had a love for it i just didn't have the money for it and I, <laughs> it was either one or the other sports car or off-road you can never do both well when you get older that credit score get up <laughs> well,
0: There is that. Credit,
2: what? <laughs> I always had a love for off-roading, and also it was the company I kept at the time. We all were into like one-upping each other, so started out with like little Honda Civics, and then upgraded to Integra. Now that was the early Fast and Furious days, so those imports were extremely popular in the early two thousands. I bucked the mold. I was all about American muscle, but a different kind of muscle. So I had a Pontiac GTP. Oh, the and, 3.8. Yeah, supercharged 3.8. And I mean, it, it kind of ripped out of the factory. But once you started like upgrading the supercharger pulley, cold air intake, MSD ignition, all that good stuff, I surprised the hell out of some of these Eclipse GSX owners. They're like, whoa. This thing is fast.
0: Yeah, I think it was it was fun wheel drive too. Fun wheel drive. <laughs> all,
2: all I heard, all I heard in that description was cha
1: ching, cha ching, <laughs> cha ching.
2: <laughs> A little bit, you know. Put put pin, pennies here and there into it, and slow and steady wins the race. But then you jump to the goat, right? It's and awesome. I I remember riding in that car,
1: that is- and that thing was awesome. And the goat was still new back then yes. too. So
2: yeah, yeah. It's a shame that that platform didn't get the love it deserved. That was an extremely well-built car. The GTO was not an American car, but it had American horsepower. The generation I had had the LS2, but the 2004 Mm -hmm. model had the uh, LS1, which to this day has so many directions you can go with the upgrades. But yeah, my GTO had an LS2. I really like my generation because it was less boring looking, less jelly beanie. Uh, <laughs> that's a good way to put it. I ain't gonna lie, that thing looked like a jelly bean. <laughs> but it was it was my sexy jelly bean. But yeah, Eric, you're right. Cause I remember I bought that and I brought it to the uh office brand spanking new. Yep. Back in the day cafe. But anyways, we had yeah, that had thing
1: a... sideways more than once, man. Oh. So
0: <laughs> It had some soft suspension. I know those cars were not were not very uh, uh stiff.
2: Actually, believe it or not, I mean, compared to what you guys are used to, it, it was soft. But out the factory, it had a very competent suspension. And it was a very basic suspension. It wasn't like I don't think the rear had a double wishbone in the rear or anything like that. It was just
0: no, but it was it was IRS though.
2: Yeah, it was IRS. Yeah, Yeah. and I I test
0: drove one. I test drove an 05. I was looking to buy,
1: but you know what? It did have. It had an exhaust that would rip your ears off. and it had
2: 400
0: horsepower. Yeah, it was awesome.
2: (laughs) Ten years ago, that's like that was some serious horsepower. Now you ain't even. You ain't sneezing on nothing unless you have anything less than five thirty now.
0: Yeah, that's now Camrys come to four hundred. Yeah. That's yeah.
2: True.
1: So from there, you had a couple A eight eights. I know that, and, and you have one now. I, I know that as well. But uh, you went. Eight. Oh, yeah, that's right.
0: Sorry. S8s. Apologies. Oh, you got an S8 too? Yeah. Your your car history sounds very similar to mine. I had a 01 S8. I had a fourth gen Camaro, two fourth gen Camaros. I started with a Honda Civic. I mean, come on now.
2: Okay.
1: Maybe Maybe it's it's a a, big guy thing. So from (laughs) there, I know you went, you know, kind of left the sports car world, went back to off-roading, and you ended up with a Jeep Commander, which is Different because most guys that are into Jeeps either do Wranglers or Grand Cherokees or stuff like that. So you ended up with a commander, and I know you had a big love for that car. And I don't remember its nickname or its name, but you'll, you'll fill me in there.
2: Her mm-hmm. no, name so- was USS Blackass. <laughs> <laughs> That so, bitch was a boat.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about what drew you to the Commander, how you had that thing built out, what you did with it, and then what inevitably ended up happening to it, which was tragic, but we'll get to that point. So let, let's let's talk about the beginning there.
2: Before the Commander, actually, my dad gave me his Jeep XJ. It was a Cherokee. It had been in my family since I was 14 years old. I grew up learning how to drive. It was, a, it was not the 4.0. It was like the 2.8 liter with a five-speed. And it, it didn't have the horsepower to get out of its own way. But when you put that thing in four low, I was crawling up stuff that, you know, these guys would, I love them. The Toyota guys, oh, oh the, the FJ can, is the only vehicle that can go throughout Moab stock. Uh, Shut up. <laughs> that thing is crawling up hills and you breaking axles. <laughs> so ultimately, I'm six, three. And at the time I was banging on like 280 pounds. I did not fit in the day on XJ. It was a joke. Like people would like clown me at my office before I met you, Eric, and would be like, you ain't got no business being in that little thing. <laughs> so I was like, okay, I agree. So I, I did some research and I started looking around other vehicles and good old fashioned me, everybody and their mother has either a Toyota 4Runner or a Jeep Wrangler. And I didn't like the whole, you're either part of this faction or you're part of that faction. So I said, I'm going to up in this crap. I'm going to go against the trend here. I'm going to do something illegal. I'm going to get an IFS on an SUV. And I was scared because I was looking up under it and I'm like, I went to go look at it and I was look, I was like, wow, this thing actually has legit hardware up under here. And then I started doing research on the different four-wheel drive systems. And just because you have four-wheel drive, they are not all created equal. As you know, in the all-wheel drive industry with the uh, sports cars, so my must-haves was it needed to have a heavy-duty transfer case, a heavy-duty rear end, and a hopefully a, a, a decent front end. If it's IFS, you're going to blow stuff up. Anyways, I started reading the different four-wheel drive systems. And so Jeep has these really cool systems that I, I believe are the best in the world, all the way from Rock Track, which is what the Wranglers have, to the Quadra Track systems that the uh, WKs and WK2s, the the Grand Cherokees and the Commander at the time. And then they had like an extreme version called Quadra Drive 2, and they had Quadra Drive 1. So Quadra Drive 1 was basically Quadra Track, but it had a low gear in the transfer case. Quadra Track has no low gear. It's just legit all-wheel drive with traction control very stressful on a transmission, transmission if you try to off-road it. <laughs> and you have the Drive 2 system, which builds on Drive 1, but adds in trick differential. So it has the ability to lock. Now, the misconception is people don't understand quadra-drive 2, so they're like, oh, it's not a real locking differential. The thing is, it is a real locking differential because when you open a differential that has lockers on them, there is a solenoid that literally locks both half shafts together and they rotate at the same time and they can't deviate. So the Drive 2 system has that, except instead of it being like air actuated or electronic actuated, it's clutch pack actuated. Yeah. So... You get pressure in the fluid, and those plates stick together in the differential locks. So that's how QuadraDrive does its trickery. Now, what's really nice about Drive is it's a point-and-shoot system. I never had to say, oh, let me lock the center, let me lock the rear, let me lock the front. The system would detect wheel slip and engage each differential individually. That was what was really nice about it. So anybody who's off-roaded knows... It's a bear to turn your SUV or your Jeep when all differentials are locked. With the quadra drive, it it could detect that you were turning and it would unlock the front differential, even if you were in the middle of a climb. I looked into that and I was like, okay, that's really cool. I might be able to do something with this because people are going to lose their shit when they see what this thing can do. And that's how I ended up landing on the Jeep Commander, Overland.
1: So what did you end up doing to it after you got it? Because obviously you can only run it stock for so long when you're off-roading. So what kind of upgrades did you end up doing to the commander?
2: I started out with two and a half inch, what you call a puck lift. So basically uh, the spacer fits in between the body and the spring and functionally lifts the vehicle up. Okay. But you, you're still on stock springs and shocks and stuff like that. Now, when you lift the vehicle, you lift the body higher, you are then allowed to put larger tires on. And you want the larger tires because that's an added lift as well. So you go from having a 28, 29-inch tire, which is like a 265, 65 or something like that, and then you upgrade it to a 265. I want to say 275.70 or something like that. I can't remember. No, 265.70, which is, I think, 30-inch tire. Of course, you go off-road, you test your upgrades, and you realize you want more. And so, so I realized my approach and departure angles were crap, and my bumpers are plastic. (laughs) <laughs> so next thing i had to upgrade was my bumpers you know you me need, I'm all yep. out. i bought both bumpers at the same damn time two grand a pop
0: <laughs> i was gonna say you only need to have one really bad uh departure angle and then it's fixed
2: <laughs> yep it, well, there you go
0: the bumper's going. gone
2: <laughs> yeah <laughs> not not a problem i started realizing that even though the commander had like legit hardware to make it a decent off-roader I could see where the bean counters kicked in in the development of this vehicle because they were they would put stuff that had no business being exposed on an off-road vehicle. So the commander, my particular version, had rear AC, and guess where they ran the AC lines? Directly under the passenger door, exposed, not covered, and then up through the wheel well into the engine bay. And so when I started digging things out, taking the, the liner inside the wheel well, <laughs> I was like, how did they get a plastic trash bag in here? I'm not kidding. It was like a, a trash bag full of styrofoam. And I'm, I'm like, oh man, this thing is, oh. So I ended up having a guy devise me a bash plate for the rear AC line. So if I ever banged on a rock, I don't crush my AC. Because if that rear AC goes out, Go, it goes out for the entire thing that's mm-hmm. how they were interconnected they weren't separate units but anyways got the bumper on there that was an all-day <laughs> uh job because of course for whatever reason they're not good like design wise like the wranglers are like the wranglers are designed to you know unbolt shit bolt shit back on there Whereas my big old hands was reaching behind and under the, the body to, to start the bolt. And it was just, it was a nightmare. I took that time to get a winch. So winch is very important for recovery. I recommend that people don't go out without a proper recovery plan. And there are different recovery tools, but I'm sure we'll get into that later. But anyways, I took that time to bolt on a 12,000 pound winch. I upgraded my lift to a four inch super lift. So that then required some real surgery on the vehicle. And it took about a week for them to install everything. Cause they were like, dude, why are you always bringing us the weirdest platforms to work on? And it's like, I've never seen a commander lifted before. That's literally what my shop guy told me. And he was like, but we're going to make it work. You know? (laughs) So, so at that point, the vehicle was substantially higher when I got the four inch lift on it and put the 35s on. So I had 35, 12 and a half, 17s. Eric, have you seen any of my videos? Because I'm literally the only guy in the world that off-roads a commander. And <laughs> had proof. so I have a ton of YouTube videos. We'll
1: link some in the show notes so people can check yeah, it
2: out. Yeah, yeah. It's literally hilarious because people are videotaping and they're talking mad shit. They're like, oh, he has no business being out here. It's, it's, it's funny. And then he's like, oh, he doesn't have the flex to get up that thing. And she just walks right up some of the steepest, most difficult obstacles. And my whole point of that was to prove that IFSs out the box might not have the uh, same articulation as a straight axle. But when you have the right setup... And you know what you're doing. And you have to change your driving style. It is just as capable. It's not as sexy looking. But it gets the job done. Right. And that was that was the point of that. So I put the 35s on there. Had the rear bumper. Winch. And then I started blowing up half shafts in the front. And that's when I was like. Oh. This is going to be a problem. If I got to do surgery on the trail. Every time I do a difficult job. So I ended up going online and started meeting a lot of people from around the world, talking to them like uh, the Australians, man, they are amazing group of people to reference for off-road ideas and uh, best practices and stuff like that, that those guys, they're on another level. But anyways, there was a guy who had a really popular grand Cherokee that was having the same problems. And he found a company called RCV, which is an American company that literally makes bulletproof half shafts and they're like a Burfield axle. I don't know. I don't know if you're familiar with Burfield, but Burfields, uh, if you look at like in cars, the CV is like what, three or four balls in a ring and that's how, and they're interconnected through the splines that allow it to be like a continuously variable
0: Joint. joint. joint.
2: There we go. And um, But Burfields are different in the sense that they have those same p- parts, but instead of a soft, rubbery, oily cover to protect it, it's a massive steel cage that contains the outward pressure that happens when the axle is under load and you try to turn the steering wheel. So that steel, bo- that steel cage is literally holding those balls in place as you're turning. And I never blew up another axle ever again. And I did even crazier stuff.
1: So it's almost like a reinforced CV joint.
2: Yeah, that's exactly what it is. Well,
1: that sounds similar to the
0: axles that we have on our cars. Because they've got those steel cages too. Yeah,
1: Mm. we run drag axles for road racing because they're a lot stronger and they can – but they they do that by using a combination of beefier parts from other vehicles and all that kind of stuff it's it's but i'd be really curious to look into the stuff you're talking about because i could see an application for that and and, and i I got some ideas gears are always turning (laughs) let let me ask you a
0: question real quick though yeah sure so i'm assuming that the front suspension and the front componentry of the commander is similar to uh, the wk1s has anybody tried to retrofit a a solid axle under one of those.
2: Actually, the WK1s and the XKs are actually sister and brother. They're twins. There's no difference between the two platforms other than the body was longer than the WK and a little bit wider and it weighed more. But the underpinnings, the drivetrain, they're both the same. So yes, parts are totally interchangeable powertrain-wise. And yes, people do... Monster retrofits. So I I know a couple of guys that have put Dana 44 in the front and a Dana 60 in the rear. I didn't think there was a need to do a Dana 60 in the rear, but always bigger means stronger, though, right? But does it come with
0: a 44 stock in the rear?
2: I'm glad you asked that. So it depended, it depends on the platform. So if you had the Quadra Track, it had a soft Dana 44. But we know there's all kinds of parts for Dana 44s that you could build on it. But you don't want the Quadra Track because it didn't have a low uh, a transfer case for uh, low gearing. And then you had uh, the Quadra drive systems. You had a I believe it was an eight pin or and then there was a ten pin Chrysler eight and a quarter was the one I had. Which is the equivalent to a Dana 44, I, I would think, uh, in toughness. The reason why they did the 10 pin like that was that was the only differential that was big enough to house the clutch packs and the locking and all that stuff. And so that's how that works. So I didn't see a point in getting rid of the rear, but I've heard people doing that. And yes, you can do a Dana 44 or a Dana 30 up front. I've, I've seen a few guys do that as well. That was going to be a pretty big job because they literally have to cut into the frame and cut the subframe out Mm. uh, for the IFS. And now it's all open, so they have to reinforce. It's not a body on frame, it's it's a- A Unibody? uniframe. Uniframe. And I tell people there's a difference between a unibody and a uniframe. A uniframe is where it is a unibody, but they sandwich a ladder frame to it, which makes it extremely rigid. You could have that truck in full tilt and you could still open all the doors. And it was completely amazing. I was amazed at how strong that frame was. But a lot of people don't like unibody because, oh, it's 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 flexy and all that. So, no, we've come a long way since the 90s and 80s era XJs. So they got to cut all that stuff out and then retrofit, you know, radius arms and longer springs because you know those the, the ifs inherently has shorter springs because it doesn't have all that room for travel but the trade-off is ifs gives you a little bit more ground clearance because you don't have anything dangling up under the front i didn't see it necessary for what the style of off-roading that i do to need to go straight axle up front
0: now, when you say the style of off-roading that you do, a lot of people don't understand that mm-hmm. there's different styles to off-roading. There's rock crawling. You need mm-hmm. specific rock crawler you know, vehicles. A mm-hmm. rock crawler is going to be different than a mudding vehicle. Mm-hmm. Uh, so why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about the different kinds of sub-disciplines within off-roading?
2: You're correct. There are definite lanes to off-roading. You have what I did is called overlanding, where it's more of a adventure style, of off-roading. The idea of overlanding is to be able to survive with only the things that you bring. The idea is to, you know, go to old ghost towns, and, you know, try to dig up buried treasure. No, not, that's not it. But it's like, a, it's, it's an adventure. You're, you're learning about the landscape. It's a different style of off-roading because the lands tend to be a little bit wetter and looser and stuff like that. So there's not a whole lot of uh, rock crawling involved in it. There are situations where you have to climb over a tree or big old boulders or drop down into a river and drive across the river. That's overlanding. And the term overlanding came around, uh, Range Rover coined it back in the 80s with the uh, Land Rover Discovery. Not quite back to the Range Rover classics. But when the Discovery came out, In the late 80s, I believe it was, I think that's when the Disco One came around, Discovery One, they called it overlanding. And overland vehicles tend to have what you call stadium seating. And the idea of stadium seating is pretty cool. You want the people in the back to have the same experience as the people in the front. So typical overland vehicles have a step up in the rear. And sometimes they have a, if it's a third row, it has another step up There and that's when you start getting into like skylights in the rear and stuff like that. The Jeep Commander actually had that step up. It was called Commander View, and it was pretty cool. You'd be in the back, and there's like these two open moon roofs that had like little shades on them and stuff like that that you know you can look out and look around and see over the driver. And it sucks if you have a little old lady trying to get in there because she's got to like you know, reincarnate her uh, jumping days. My grandmother hated getting in my commander. (laughs) (laughs) You have uh, rock crawling. And that's where a lot of people like to go to parks like Roush Creek, Gore, West Virginia, Flagpole in Virginia. There's all kinds of cool off-road networks that people like to test their flex. You got to get the flex, bro. And those are the guys who literally do some of the craziest stuff. Like they're they're literally driving over boulders the size of small cars and getting in between them and just extreme articulation. And this is where lockers are very important for uh, rock crawling because you'll see guys blow their stuff up because they have – open differentials and they're trying to crawl through a quarry and they get stuck and they have no winch. And then they got to pay somebody hundreds of maybe thousands of dollars to come get them out because they broke or blew up something. You have that style of off-roading and then you have mudding. That's a different breed of people. They, uh, they That's
0: Daniel's the- people. I think. And, uh, they're, oh, mud- they're mud people.
2: They're mudding people, boy. I ain't never seen anybody purposely get into a vehicle with no top on, drive into the most dankiest, stankiest ass (laughs) prehistoric looking water mud and get skadoosh. Woo! Woo! I'm like, oh my God. (laughs) You know, Uh, those people are very special. Like, (laughs) look at me, bro. I'm muddy, bro yeah where'd you get some mud at i went over there i'm like oh god
3: let me get away <laughs> 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 and you're not lying about the stankness of that mud because there's a lot of places that i ride at and go out four-wheeling on uh-huh. with atvs and there's always those pits that the water's been sitting for like a month and a half straight <sighs> so it's stagnant it's got all kinds of like mosquito larva and everything in it. it just has that nasty wretched smell to it and you know
1: you Blood end up you, end, you know you end up eating a little bit of
3: it i mean come on now oh, oh no God.
2: they go into it like i got slow-mo videos of people just and they're like at the buffet
1: <laughs> <as> they <that laughs> corral man they're <laughs> yeah.
2: and then it's just like this wave of nutella <laughs> oh. he is not <laughs> lying coming in at them. <laughs> oh.
3: that's why they say a little dirt never hurt
2: I never heard it. Yet. So
1: let's kind of circle back and let's talk about what ended up happening to the commander. I mean, you ran that thing for years.
2: Yeah. So I don't know if you guys remember a couple of years ago, but we were getting hammered with some freaky storms up here in Ellicott City and Columbia, and and uh, we had some flash floods. I'm going to Cloby's to go get me some ribs from the barbecue place and I'm coming back the back way and I mean it just starts coming down so I'm going down the hill and I'm like damn this is like the matrix and I see a car sitting at the bridge it's a single lane bridge of where I need to go at the time the water was maybe foot deep like barely pressing over my foot so I go to see if anybody's in the car because the hazard lights are on. All of a sudden, I'm looking. My Jeep is like right behind him. And I just feel like this energy. You like, you can feel it. And then all of a sudden, water is now in seconds. Ankle deep, knee deep, hip deep. I was caught in a flash flood. And I was down in the valley when this water was coming through. I was like, I need to get the fuck out of here, dude. I started hauling ass. I look like a Clydesdale running up the hill, trying to sa- save myself. You know, I'm just trying to get out of there. And as, as I got into the commander and I go to turn around, the water is coming down in there and it's like rolling up my hood as I'm trying to turn around. And then it hydrolocks; oh, It no. sucks in water as I turn around. I should have just backed out. So now it's hydro-locking. Now the water is, when I had to lift, I think I measured it right at seven foot. And the water is reaching up to the window.
1: And you're inside it still.
2: Yeah. And I had to run and I had to walk like four miles home. Lost my cell phone in the flood. Lost my Clobys. Lost Uh, your Jeep too. I, I was so mad, man. I was like, I ain't got no food. I'm fat and wet. I gotta walk home, and it's thundering and lightning, and then nobody's gonna stop and save me.
0: Wait, so you didn't get the ribs?
2: I did not get the ribs. They they went down with USS Blackass.
0: (laughs) That's a travesty, right there.
2: You know what's a travesty is? I named it USS Blackass, and it went down in a flat in the water.
0: (laughs) <laughs>
1: so that you know obviously you know uh, active nature and all that and insurance gets involved some time goes by a little you know it, you have a proper burial at sea there and all that and then you decide to get another off-roader
2: yeah buddy but you can't so,
1: have anything normal you already said yeah. that
2: so i went back to my roots and i got a, a new vehicle and it has a straight axle on it now it's a mercedes g g wagon g 500
1: excuse excuse me what
2: it's a mercedes g 500 (laughs) the Galinda wagon the Galinda wagon aka gretchen
1: because you see a lot of those off-roading too right
2: well not in the u.s no but (laughs) around the world yes
1: (laughs) (laughs) so what drew you what drew you to the mercedes i mean talk about another oddball right
2: the three Um, star bro I've been wanting a G-Wagon since I was 10 years old, 12 years old. That's when my love for it came out. I just thought they were super cool, boxy. You see like these guys bouncing around and jumping over stuff. And, and people are like, why would you do that? Why would you take a G-Class, a luxury vehicle off-road? And I'm like, ah, ease all that. This thing is a military vehicle first. And people, when they get in it, they're all excited to get in it. And they're like, "Uh, this is it. I'm like, well, what did you expect? It's a legit truck.
1: Making it the same way for like 60 years.
2: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So they just changed the formula last year. They are no longer solid front and rear. They have an IFS now.
0: So they ruined it.
2: And a solid rear now. So this is the first time that they went straight to the drawing board. And literally redesigned it, but kept the look. They said they wanted to keep the spirit and the essence, but it's it still has the three lockers. And personally, now that I know how good IFSs are, once you do the right things with them, it's not a bad setup. So I
1: remember when you got Gretchen and you went mm. out like right away, you were out in the woods playing to see what it does stock.
2: Mm -hmm. So what did
1: you think compared to the commander after all the mods and all the time you spent with it? How did it compare um, pound for pound?
2: That is a great question. And I'm going to tell you right now, the G class is on another level from the commander and it's stock. I haven't done anything. If I did the stuff in the commander when it was stock that I did in the G class at Roush Creek, Oh, she would have broke 20 minutes into the trail. No way the commander would, would be able to keep up. Traction-wise, the commander has the same ability as the G-Wagon. The G-Wagon is literally made of tougher stuff. They're, they're not control arms. They're called radius arms. The radius arms are different in the sense that in a Jeep, you have an upper control arm and a lower control arm. double wishbones. Yeah. yeah, they work like that. A radius arm is this big honking chunk of steel, right? And it operates as a upper and lower control arm, but it's just one arm. And what it does is it hooks around the uh, axle itself in a like a C-clamp. It holds the pinion and it holds the position of the axle just like a, a upper or lower control arm would. Then you have leaf spring suspensions like YJs. YJs, yeah. Yeah, had leaf springs. And,
0: and Corvettes. Old, the actual, huh? And Corvettes. <laughs> and Land Rovers. In yeah.
2: <laughs> <And> Corvettes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. The thing that people used to. Anyways, but um, <laughs> those are the different styles of suspensions. But the Mercedes suspension and overall build is just, it's a tank it's salt. Like I can literally run that thing into a wall and it it will still keep running. So we pick on these soccer moms who got G-wagons. The fact of the matter is their G-wagon will outlast your Jeep more than likely. And I am a Jeep guy through and through. I've driven CJs, I've driven TJs, I've driven YJs, I've even driven the JK and I had the privilege of driving the new JL. Now that's an interesting topic right there. Out the factory none of those vehicles will be able to withstand what the G-Wagon can. And the other thing is the G-Wagon is actually super simple to work on. Super duper simple to work on. Like it's literally three bolts holding one radius arm in place to change the oil. It's literally like you just reach in there and you just pull the on thing out and drain, drain the oil. It's, it's, Everything on there is super simple. So I have not had to take it to Mercedes. I've been able to do all the work on it myself. Change lights, change oil, jack it up, take the wheels off. You know, it's super simple to work on.
1: So you said so far no mods. You haven't done any tire mods, no lift, no
2: nothing. The only mod I've done is I've put on an aggressive all-terrain tire thus far, and it's got it's on 31-inch tires. Now, when I wanted to do 31s on the commander, I already had to lift it two inches just to get 31. I didn't have to do anything on this. And it's got plenty of room. The wheel well is just really nicely designed. It's very similar to a Jeep where there's like no thrills. It's just an open space with like a little protection to protect the body from like rocks and stuff like that. But like you get to use the entire wheel well space. Just like in a Jeep.
1: And power wise, the Commander was a Hemi and the the G Wagon's a V8. So, dollar for dollar, they're pretty similar there too, right?
2: Yeah, they're dollar for dollar. They're pretty similar. I'm actually liking the Mercedes V8 better because the Commander had, I don't know if y'all have had experience with the Hemis, but they had that displacement on demand. And if that thing decides not to work while you're on the highway, you're stuck in four cylinder mode. And I had that happen to me a couple of times. I'm like giving it the goose and she will not go into V8 mode. And also I had to replace the motor because it dropped a valve. You know, those motors are like damn near 10 grand.
0: Uh, We know someone who's had to replace a couple of them.
2: (laughs) Yeah. And I was like, why is this motor? It's a push rod, put an LS in there, you know, or something like that. But it wouldn't work because the HEMI has a throttle or engine position sensor that has to mate up with another sensor on the transmission. And that's when I started falling out of love with the commander because I was like, unless you've got like deep pockets to understand this stuff and keep up with it, this thing is going to cost so much money if any of these sensors go out. And and that includes the quadradrive system as well. If one of the, there there are four individual sensors that you got to make sure are healthy in order for the quad drive to work. Because if one sensor goes out- That's it. you got nothing. If you got a wheel speed sensor that is reading incorrectly, quad drive don't want to work. And I hated leaving that up to the system. And now, fortunately, I was one of the lucky ones that never had a situation where it went out on me. But there are lots of stories of people being like, it just stopped working, and I don't know why. You need to have to do a diagnostic and all that stuff. That's too much. Gretchen was a blessing in disguise. What's the Mercedes 4x4 like compared to the Jeep system? They're very similar. I think the transfer cases in like the Jeeps, I think it's the NV gearing. I think they're belt-driven transfer cases in the Jeep. And I think the transfer case in the Mercedes is gear-driven, and those tend to be tougher. And, but uh, you have to keep up with the fluid maintenance on. Well, you got to keep up with the fluid maintenance on all of them. Don't get me wrong. The, the belt-driven transfer cases are mad tough. Like I'm seeing people with Rubicons doing all kinds of crazy stuff, even b- beyond what I'm willing to do with the, the G-Wagon and their belt-driven transfer cases. It just so happens the gear-driven transfer cases are inherently stronger. And it's just a different solution.
1: You've been off-roading all this time. Where do you, so you mentioned a couple of places, Roush Creek and, and Gore and, and, and et cetera. Is that where you go the most often? Or are there some bucket list places you'd like to go to as well?
2: Yeah. So Maryland sucks. Off-roading <laughs> is illegal in Maryland. I've been pulled over for it. Had to do community yep, service. Can, oh yeah. Yeah. I think in some places, like if you off-road in a, like a watershed or something like that where people's drinking water or some endangered mushroom is at, uh, you're going to have a, a hefty fine and up into jail time. I tell people the best off-roading is legal off-roading. There are trail network maps that you can take your vehicle on fire roads. That's a good way to start you know, reserve roads that are kind of off the beaten path, but they're like legit highways, even though they're off-road. There's maps of like scenic off-road highways.
0: Is that like the transcontinental map or something like that?
2: Yeah, yeah, that sounds about right. I have to I have to look it up. That's a good way to start. Also, sometimes you can find properties where, Off-road companies used to use the land as proving grounds. So like near me, it's off of 295. Coca-Cola Drive. Coca-Cola Drive. Yeah. Land Rover used to have proving grounds back there. And the tenants now have no problem with people continuing to use those lands to off-road just as long as they stay within the bounds of the proving ground and they don't be going driving over the train tracks and stuff like that then you have like the off-road parks which would be like a, a next step up to roush creeks the gores the wind havens the big bears and stuff like that and then there's some there's a park down in north carolina uh yawari that's going to be a little bit more advanced and also off-roading up a mountain is a little bit more different because you got to have cojones to be okay with your vehicle. You see nothing but trees and sky. And then you look down and you see the valley thousands of feet below you. So, you <laughs> know, you're looking at this say It's like one wrong move and I'm going to die. I'm going to die. <laughs> so further out west is the more of the rock crawling stuff like Moab and Rubicon Trail. Those are like, you asked me what's my bucket list? Rubicon Trail by far. Yes.
1: In a G-Wagon.
2: In a G-Wagon.
1: So you have some very unique vehicles that you off-road with, yeah. from a, you know, humble beginnings with the Jeeps and whatnot. What would you recommend for somebody that's just starting out in this discipline of motorsport?
2: I would recommend starting out, first off, what is your budget looking like? Second, be okay with the fact that sometimes, you know, these Wranglers are expensive, so you don't have to start out with a Wrangler. Me personally, I love like the, the late 70s to mid to late 80s vehicles. So you got like Suzuki Samurais, Suzu Troopers, Jeep XJs. But if your pockets are a little bit deeper, you can start looking at like the Wranglers and you don't have to get a Rubicon. Start out with like a, a Wrangler Sahara or Sport, the Toyota uh, Hilux or Tacoma. And these platforms have such a following that it's cheap. Like you don't have to spend a whole lot of money on upgrading. Just figure out what is your priorities. So I learned through my mistakes, I wouldn't say mistakes as I've gone along the way, I've learned that before the lift, you need to think about recovery. So you need to figure out, does your vehicle have good, strong recovery points? If not, where can you fabricate something strong enough to withstand a, a, a nasty tug or work on looking at winches and bumpers? Because those are the first things to go. But some people, you know, find that they want to get right into the nasty and they put a two inch lift and a tire on. So I would say those older vehicles on a budget, depending on which one it is, I think the Samurais are actually going for a decent amount of money nowadays. If you can get your hands on a a Land Cruiser LC 80, an XJ, of course, any kind of Wrangler that's not rusted, gotta make sure it's not rusted out because you're gonna be chasing that (laughs) forever. Once happened in my room, yeah, you're done. And then they become unsafe. Don't take a vehicle that smells funny or and is or are rusting. If you can find a vehicle out west, go for it. And if and you can afford to get it here. Because those vehicles are always going to be in better shape than Northeast or just East Coast vehicles, period, because all the street seasoning we put on the roads during the wintertime.
1: So would you say that there's a vehicle or brand or or just to stay away from, like, don't even waste your time?
0: Mercedes.
2: (laughs) Actually, I think that's a fair statement. I think that's that's a very fair statement because. Honestly, you might not have a choice but to stay away from it because those vehicles are not cheap. My particular model is a 2007 and I purposely picked a 2007 because that was before they started adding all the electric gizmos and radar and all that crap that can go out on you. But even though it's a 2007, it still cost me like right at 60 grand. So I think you can get a 2004 for like 40 something, like in the mid to high 40s.
3: Some of the vehicles you were mentioning for people starting out, you're mentioning a lot of the more like SUV type vehicles. What are your mm. thoughts on the trails with guys in trucks? Do you see a lot of them out there or is it more SUV, Jeep type vehicles? That you see? Well,
2: no matter where you go, it's going to be Jeep heavy. Wrangler is king. And then after the Wrangler, the Cherokees. And then on the opposite side of that, you have your Toyota guys. Now, those guys tend to be the ones with the trucks, the, t- the Tacoma, the Hilux.
1: The forerunners, yeah.
2: I've seen where people take a super duty, bob it, and turn it into like a rig, like a legit... Like you just bypass all the work you needed to do to make a buggy because you chop your F-250 down. It's got massive... <laughs> Axles front and rear and cut the body a little bit and put like 42s on it. And you got a buggy. <laughs> Truggy. <laughs> um, and then I've seen where guys have four wheel steering. How about that? That's pretty cool, huh? You can go in there and be a, a just starting out type off-roader to like the extreme, extreme. And they all are there helping each other out. Uh, The people, the community is really cool community. Yeah, there's some ball busting going on between the Jeep guys and the uh, Toyota guys, but it's all in good fun. But the Jeep and community, (laughs) there's
3: some- Interesting characters in that. Interesting
2: characters there. (laughs) I've literally, when I showed up with my commander, I'm like, hey, how you doing? And I had a guy literally stand there and I don't like IFS. And walked off. I was like, well, peanut butter sandwich to you too. <laughs> <bitch."> <laughs> <laughs> and then you got the guys that just all they want to do is drinking off road. I, I think that's the like if you're going to do that, do that on your own property and your own farm or whatever. But don't go to a, a certified place and endanger other people's lives and endanger the facility's ability to carry insurance because you want to go out there and drink alcohol and set fire to the forest because you did something stupid
0: yeah never never drink and get behind the wheel of anything a sports car road car off-roader nothing just leave leave the alcohol at home leave it out well and the great thing that you mentioned that is
3: i've noticed not just with the off-road community where that tends to be a common thing where everybody has a cooler but Brad and I are both familiar with 75 and 80 dragway. It's been open and closed multiple times. And one of the most recent times it was open, in my opinion, one of the downfalls it had is because spectators can come and drink, bring their own beer. But the problem is they didn't put any stipulations of it being only in cans. And a lot of the guys that used to go there to run that track stopped going because of broken glass in the paddock area. Mm. It's like nobody wants to go in there with an expensive brand new set of slicks and run over glass and destroy a brand new tire. It's the same thing out in the woods.
2: Yeah, I tell people, it's like, when you get there, act like you're going to someone's house. Don't go disrespecting their property and they're ignoring their rules because what's ultimately going to happen, and I've seen this on a lot of trails (laughs) lately, they're shutting them down because people are completely disrespectful to people's property because A lot of these trail networks literally go in people's backyard and they give you permission to go back there and enjoy yourself. But when you're littering, you're just drunk, doing whatever, loud, one bad person, one spoiled individual can ruin it for the rest of it.
1: Yeah. And, and, you know, it was something I was going to bring up and I'm, and I'm not as
2: close to it as you guys are with
1: the experience and whatnot, but I've seen it on a lot of shows that I watch about off-roading to kind of, you know, educate myself on other disciplines. And I know one of the big things in your guys' community is also the environment. And I understand full disclaimer, you know, we are still burning dinosaur blood here. We're not off-roading in EVs yet. So let's put that aside. Let's take that out of the equation. There's still a deep respect for the environment itself where I've seen where guys are like, yeah, we'll cut down a tree that's dead. We'll knock stuff out. We'll pull stuff off the way while we're on the trail, but something that's alive, we're not going to kill a living tree. We're not going to try to damage the forest or whatever. So I found that to be really interesting, you know, and when something does go wrong and sometimes somebody does something they shouldn't, man, there, there's some serious backlash from that. Yeah, so
2: yeah. Uh, yeah. And they'll shut you down. Like a lot of people, do not use the appropriate recovery strap when they wrap their winch around a tree. You're dead wrong if you're putting raw cable up against a tree because that's literally slitting the throat of the tree. I think it's important to know that you need to have proper equipment. Don't drink. Don't be taking weapons out there if you're not authorized because a lot of these places are on federal land. So if you get caught with a weapon, you're done. Yeah, that's basically it. You're right, Eric, is like, there's a way to have fun, but respect the area.
0: Absolutely. So
1: let's switch gears a little here, pun intended. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about your biggest oops moment while you're out on the trail. Well, I thought
0: we already heard it. It was getting ribs.
2: (laughs) (laughs) No, that's not an oops. That's an odd hell. (laughs) I got one. So my buddy owns an off-road park. His name is AK. Y'all might've heard uh, of, of his company as uh, Chaos Off-Road. They're a massive fabrication shop that does all kinds of crazy things for people's vehicles. My buddy took his TJ to uh, Chaos, and this dude did a one fell swoop upgrade pretty much turned his Wrangler into a buggy, but it still looks like a Wrangler. $25,000. Now that I said that, let me get to my oops. So I'm off-roading with this guy, and he's got like 20-something inches of travel front and rear and jumping down off of stuff. And I'm like, you guys are going to kill me. My airbags are going to go off, and I'm going to die today. Anyways, we get to this thing called V-notch. And... I don't know if you've ever been in a vehicle with a 42 degree lean listing over <laughs> most people, when they, when they get up on a, like an embankment, they feel like the car's going to roll over. You're 40 something degrees. You're you're the vehicle's weight is literally all pressing on the other axle and you're holding yourself up to uh, be able to control the vehicle. So we're going through V-notch, and these little buggies have no problem getting by this tree. Now, the commander has a horrible viewing angle when it comes to being able to see your surroundings. So I noticed there was a kick out at the tree at 40 degrees. I'm up there, like, looking down, and I'm like, is that a boulder? No, no, buddy. You're good. You're good. Come on. Am I going to clear it? Yeah, you're going to clear it. You're going to clear it. And I'm like, okay, you're my spotter. I trust you. Passenger door. It looked like, it looked like I hit an iceberg.
0: Passenger
2: <laughs> finger, the door, and I start seeing my door from the inside going like quivering, like. And I'm looking. I'm like, I know they didn't. So if you look at a video on my YouTube, it's got like sixty thousand views. I got a crease from the front passenger door to the rear passenger door from that boulder that I had a oops moment on. You know it's bad. They were like, don't even drive up. And they're just looking at it like this. And I'm looking back at them like, and they're not saying anything. I was like, how bad is it? Oh, it's not that bad. I'm gonna get out and see. No, 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 no. Just, just, no, stay in the car. And I'm like, oh, heck no. I get out and I'm like, I'm gonna fight somebody. Your spotter. You gotta Who's fight your my, spotter. I, okay, so my spotter is a preacher. He's a man of God. I can't beat up a preacher. He forgave him. I had to forgive him. No, he's supposed to forgive you. I cussed the hell out of his ass though. <laughs> and oh, then did, oh, did, did you oh. do
0: confession right after?
2: I'm not. No. (laughs) (laughs) We'll leave that where it is.
1: (laughs) That's awesome. Oh, (sighs) man,
2: I'm still mad at that to this day. That happened like five years ago.
1: You know, you mentioned earlier about, you know, recovery gear, a lot of things about guys starting out and all that. What are some essentials? for folks that are, you know, getting into this, you know, outside of, you know, just leave it alone, learn to drive. I mean, that seems to be a common across all our disciplines, right? Leave the car alone until you can out drive the vehicle. Don't mess with it. Right. But you mentioned there's some essentials that a person should have when they're doing this. What would you recommend people put in their trunk when they're out there?
2: First and foremost, I would say never go off into the woods by yourself. Always have someone with you. That's the most important thing. I've made the mistake of going off by myself and I've had a very close situation where my vehicle might still be out there. Got lucky. Number two, if you can't afford a winch, have a come along. A come along with a high tensile strength cable, have the tree protection strap to wrap around a tree. A winch, I can't tell you how important a winch is. Like, that should have been, for me, that should have been one of the first things I got for myself. Because at the end of the day, if you get high-centered, which I have done, and I had no winch up at Potts Mountain in Virginia with my boy, and I was learning how to reacquaint myself to off-roading, what you should never do is straddle a sand mountain. (laughs) And the belly of my vehicle sat down on the top of that mountain and I was stuck for six hours. And you know what? People just drove right on by on their motorcycles. They didn't help me. You're not going to be able to budge a 6,000 pound vehicle if you get high centered on something. So winch, recovery strap, recovery gear, you'll need a shovel. Oh, and a socket set. Those to me are the essentials.
3: So to go along with the winch, would you recommend snatch blocks for guys?
2: Yeah, so snatch blocks essentially double the pulling power of the winch. So in certain cases, like when you're really stuck, like wedged in between rocks, that's when a snatch block is a really good power multiplier uh, for your winch. So I don't think it's necessary, but it's a nice to have. They're super cheap. You might as well get it, but you're rarely going to use it.
3: I tend to use them more in not when I'm needing to be pulled straight. Mm -hmm. I'll do it to where if the only good anchor point is a tree straight ahead of me, but I need to go to, I'll hook to two trees and use that smash block pull me the angle I need to. Yep. So I've never used them for amplifying the power, but I've definitely used it for pulling me a different direction than I'm
2: Oh yeah. Yeah. You're right. That's a really good way. Like if you, if you have a horrible angle and you got the straps for it, yeah, you can put, you can, you can spider web a couple of trees or, and, and just pull that short distance and then readjust and whatever. But the real purpose of the snatch block is power amplifier. So what, what happens is you use the snatch block and tie it off onto someone's truck or something that's solidly anchored down, right? And then you return the power back to your bumper. So essentially you have doubled the pulling power of the winch because you it, it's a
0: return back. All right, so another question for you, which is a debate in the, the winching world, is a steel line versus synthetic?
2: That's a good question. Uh, a lot of people, it, it depends on who you're talking to, but I'm going to tell you right now, the Spydra cable is literally stronger than the steel cable, and it's totally safer than the, than the steel cable. The steel cable... People, for some reason, like them because they are under the notion that it's just a stronger material. Now, the Spydra is just as strong as the 3-8 steel. And it's safer in a sense because steel cables have a problem of storing the energy of the pull within the cable itself. And what happens is, it can explode and whip when you get a cable that thick flying around and people are not being safe standing behind trees or what or don't put the drop bag on it that's a very dangerous item it can most certainly a really nasty laceration if not amputate if that thing starts
3: flying around i always tell people with the steel cables to be careful because The easiest reference I have is if anybody's ever seen the movie Men of Honor, when the anchor chain snaps takes his leg off, I've seen cables and chains snap, and the way they whip back, I've been fortunate not to be in the way of them a couple times.
2: And see, now, spider cable, synthetic cable, does not store that kinetic energy within the cable itself. You can literally stand right next to it if that cable fails. It's not going to whip. It's simply just going to turn into paper mache and fall to the ground.
1: I like that. Poof. No, it's a, <laughs> one, more,
0: one more quick question on the winch. Yeah, sure. um, Harbor Freight winches. Okay. What are your opinions on them versus, I just went through this. I was looking for, you know, a winch to get for the, the truck because the bumper has the, the winch plate. I settled on the Smittybilt uh, XRO uh, with synthetic cable, 10,000 pound. But I seriously considered the, uh, the Badlands uh, 12,000 um, pound because they're both similarly priced. I, I ended up with Smitty built because of the, I guess the, the reputation uh, harbor Freight has. but what are your opinions on that?
2: There is nothing wrong with harbor freight whatsoever. I, sh- I say you should have got the 12,000 pound harbor freight because the thing is, the harbor freight Lynch uses Smitty built parts. The difference is the Smittybilt is modular; like you can take it apart, work on it, and then put it back together, and all that great stuff. The Harbor Freight, it is what it is. <laughs> when it burns up, just throw that some bitch in the trash and get you another cheap one. You can't take it apart, but if you have the money for like a nicer winch, you're off roading. Is equivalent to your use. Like if you do a lot of off-roading and you get stuck a lot, probably gonna want to get a really good winch because yeah, you get
0: what you pay for with the winch. Yeah,
2: line. yeah. That harbor freight will burn out long before a a Smitty build or mile marker or, or a warn. Uh, warn. So me personally, I've gone with Warns. I'm getting a Warren Xeon, and this bad boy comes with everything. It's remote controlled. I can control my lights. I, you know, I can plug up air compressor to it. it. It gives me, it lets me know what the voltage usage load. You're not going to get that with a, a a Harbor Freight. You just better hope your alternator and battery can deal with it.
3: <laughs> Another quick thing for winches and being a year on the trails a lot, a big thing I tell people all the time with winches is because I've, I went with the 12,000-pound Badlands from Harbor Freight, but I don't off-road very often. It's right. not that often I need it, so I couldn't justify buying right. a higher-grade winch. And other than that, because I have multiple vehicles and tractors and things i like that got to change around on, I put mine into a cradle system instead of mounting it on a bumper of one of my trucks because mm-hmm. the fact that one thing that I tell people all the time is a lot of guys, and you see it very common with Jeeps, is a guy will have a winch on the front, But if he doesn't use it often enough and then everything gets all corroded inside for the contacts, they get out on the trail, they pull it out, and then it won't go back in. So you see a guy coming back from trail with the lead wrapped around his front bumper because he couldn't get it to go back in. So do you have any recommendations of any sort of protective stuff for ones that are solid mounted? And what's your thoughts on cradles where you can change front to back as I did with mine?
2: Yeah, I think it depends on what your requirements are for the winch. Obviously, it's beneficial to have a cradle because you have more options on where to start to pull from, but the strongest platform would definitely be a static mount. I've seen people do static mount winch up front and then keep another winch in the cradle and only put it on the rear when they need it. They have the the connectors and everything going to the rear.
3: Other than that, do you know like uh, protective out-of-the-weather elements, like covers and stuff like that. Oh, yeah, yeah. I forgot about that one.
2: Yeah, you're definitely going to get more life out of your winch. You're going to get better response out of your clutch control if you protect it from the elements, because what sucks is when it's two degrees outside and you're trying to handle a winch that's all iced up because you didn't cover it up. That sucks. I learned that lesson a while back ago it's probably best to, to use a cover. Second, this is where steel, this is kind of going back to what you were ta- asking me, Eric, about steel versus Spydra. Steel is resistant to UV. Spydra is not. So when the sun bakes the Spydra cable, the synthetic cable, you compromise its strength. It would probably be best to most definitely cover your winch.
3: I'm assuming like you were saying when it was two degrees and if the synthetic had a bunch of water in it, it turns into a solid block and it's hard to unspool it.
2: Yeah. Oh, yeah. And
3: same thing <laughs> for uh,
2: steel. I agree. Um, just cover it. I mean, the cover is like a few bucks and it takes a few seconds of your time to cover it. So, Drew, man, this is all really
1: good information. So. For somebody that's starting out, let me say like myself, that's not as familiar with off-roading like Mountain Man Dan is and Brad and and so on and other guests that we've had on the show. Are there any books, forums, websites or anything that I could use to kind of, you know, nerd out on and and get more familiar with? You know, now that we're going into the winter when a lot of motorsport is closing down that I could do some research on. Is there anything that you could recommend?
0: You can (laughs) wheel in the winter.
2: (laughs) Wheel in in the winter. For me, when I started out, again, as an adult, we didn't have this wonderful tool called Google. Just type in like off-road parts for whatever your vehicle is. And like, it'll immediately give you some really cool websites, not magazines, but I mean, obviously four-wheeling is probably the biggest one where they show some pretty interesting projects within the magazine. But for me, I haven't really been big into the forums as much as what is out there for me now and how do I make it work for me. I never really looked at other people's projects and said, ooh, I want to do that. So for me, it was go to Google and then you go, you start finding about things like Quadratech, which is a really big one. Then uh, there are a lot of off road based communities on Facebook for both Nissan, Toyota, and Jeep and Ford. Those groups tend to stick to themselves. Like Jeep people don't talk to Ford people. Ford people don't talk to Toyota people. And there's always like.
0: <laughs> and nobody talks <laughs> to Mercedes a, person.
2: Yeah. yeah nobody. Yet. Shoot. Mercedes people don't talk to Mercedes people. I'm finding that out right now. <laughs> I don't get no waves. Dude, you have to apply for their overlanding group, the Mercedes G Wagon, Overlanding of America, and all that stuff. And the fact that I didn't have a G Wagon as my cover photo, they declined me.
0: You're not overlanding the Bloomingdale's.
2: I, oh, that's what the problem is. <laughs> I'll be like, Excuse me, I need to run over this bush real quick. <laughs> The most entertaining group to me is the Jeep groups. I'm still a part of the Jeep groups. Jeep Cult, Jeeping of America is another one. Those people just want to have a good time, but they do some of the funniest ball busting. Like, I can't say it on this, but like you look at some of the memes that they say, Jeep people are like this. And it's usually like this man's man and whatever. And then Toyota people are this. And it's like, Yeah, I'm not going to say it on on here, but it's it's all in good fun. I got a question. You guys have seen it before.
0: (laughs) How how do all those other people feel about the Subaru people? Oh, the Subaru. We won't talk about the Subaru (laughs) folk. (laughs) They're they're a special breed too. Yeah.
2: Yeah. (laughs) No, the Subaru folk, I'm cool with the Subaru folk. Uh, Matter of fact, I did Tell of the Dragon this year, Eric. Ran into, I was riding with my buddy. He has a uh, 2012 STI, I believe it is. The one that gets no love. The ugly one. The ugly one. That's what everybody calls it. Anyways, so my boy's like, uh, we're going to just, you know, take it easy. We're not going to do anything. And next thing I know, pow pow and we're just hauling ass down the road. And then there's this guy in a, no, what is that thing called? The Subaru. The Tribeca. The forge. No, not the Tribeca. It's like it's now back. Not, it's, it's like the Cross-Trek, but it's renamed Oh, song. it's the Impreza Cross-Trek. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And he is keeping up with the STI and his cross-track. Ah, I, I I was I was dumbfounded. Dumbfounded. But they, so they were on pavement. they were on pavement, right? Yeah, we were on pavement. But he's he. he <laughs> He said he says he has a, a WRC loadout, whatever that means. He has tires that are a bit knobby for him to go off-road. I've heard help things where guys say that they have the simulated low gear setting in their Subaru Outback. And I'm like, that ain't if it ain't a transfer case, it don't count. <laughs> and dude, you see these guys, they got them, they're at Roush Creek.
0: No, I have, I study as hell, they're
2: always like the super skinny uh <laughs> there's a type throughout his life type <laughs> and he's got like and he's talking to you serious about his off-road capabilities and then for, some and then he reasons, tries to drive they from, uh, Rock to Creek. Creek. <laughs> yeah they start talking junk like you paid all that money bro and i can do that and i'm like well you're yeah. like here here here's my digits Text me when you want me to pull you out. All right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I need to get a sticker that says uh, "Subaru Recovery Team." <laughs> <laughs> That's
1: awesome. So you, you you mentioned Roush Creek a bunch of times. Some of our guys, including Brad, have gone there to take the school that they offer. Are there other oh. places like that that do one hundred one course? Yeah, that do courses. Or do you now? And you also mentioned you've been doing this for so long. Do you find yourself teaching other off roaders how to? To work this motorsport?
2: Actually, I have. I haven't done any official cadre work simply because I don't have time. But when I do go off-road and we have someone new, you know, we always have, you know, the before the event brief where you get everybody in a big huddle and you go over the basics, who to look for, for information. and con- I do that stuff for my own club. And then what we'll do is we try to sparse the experienced drivers in between the inexperienced drivers. So like every three or four vehicles, depending on how big the group is, we'll have an experienced driver lead, then three or four unexperienced drivers or people without the appropriate recovery gear. Then we'll drop in another experienced driver with all the appropriate recovery gear and experience and then what we do is we call it's called spotting so if we get to a rather technical obstacle the first driver goes first then that driver stays and spots the next driver then the first driver takes off and then the driver who just got over the obstacle spots that driver or it could just be like one guy just sits there the entire time and just he just knows the trail and he just tells everybody where to go. And that's where the teaching of the inexperienced driver comes into place. Or I'll see somebody like go down a hill a certain way and I'll tell them to stop. Do not do that because we do not want a rollover situation because a lot of people will turn away from the hill because they get scared. And when the vehicle is shifting and transitioning into like that in-between phase of shifting its weight around. It gets kind of scary for people and they don't know where their will is. But the last thing you want to do is turn away from the, the lean. You want to t- always turn into the lean and do not stab the brakes because it'll cause the vehicle to kind of get very unsituated and it can lead to a whole bunch of mess you don't want.
1: So that brings up a really good question. Um, ABS, are you for or against it in off-roading?
2: And off-roading, ABS is a really good thing because anything that you can do to increase traction, you want it. And ABS increases traction through just being a traction manager, through slip management. Also, it helps to prevent, to a certain degree, individual tires locking up. Now, ultimately, you're on loose gravel. ABS ain't going to matter because once you start sliding, that's it. It doesn't detect that the vehicle's moving when it detects all wheels are stopped. So it's not going to try to ABS it up. But like on muddy situations and stuff like that, oh yeah, ABS definitely helps. So is there a structure to
1: moving up in off-roading? So is there like so many hours behind the wheel, you know, things like that?
2: I don't think it's a managed structure. I think it's more, what are you comfortable with? What do you consent to? (laughs) So
1: is it more like skiing then, where it's like, we got the green hills and the blue hills and the double black diamonds?
2: Literally like that. Yeah. Roush Creek. They literally have the definitions of the trails, but the green trails are like, you know, stock friendly. Then blue trail is imminent body damage possible. You're obviously going to want to have a lifted vehicle at that point. Then you have your black and those are the trails where they are extremely technical. Body damage will happen. So if you are all about bumping something, getting out and checking it, you don't want to do a black trail. Then above the black trail, you have the red trails and that's just the Jesus take the wheel trail. (laughs) You You don't want None of that sauce right there. I'm going to tell you right now because I've been in there and I'm sitting there. (laughs) Some of them trails is sketchy, especially, again, when you start climbing up house-sized boulders going up the hill of a mountain or something like that, that's buggy level. You need buggy or truggy.
0: And and to Drew's point about the different trail levels and stuff, Rouse Creek also has, for some of their obstacles, they've got bypasses. So yeah. if you've got a recovery vehicle behind you or you're an inexperienced person mixing got your options. group and they don't want to take, they don't want to drive through Rock Creek, there's a bypass for it.
2: Exactly. Nice.
1: So are you allowed to take passengers or only
2: your spotter? No, you can take whoever paid. Oh, okay. If you can fit them in there, they they get to the ride along.
0: Yeah, it's not it's not as structured as a track day. Yeah, I'm just no.
1: curious because yeah. some of our listeners do come from the track world. So, you know, I got to ask these questions, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I, yes, I mean, I would right. love—I would love
3: to
0: ride shotguns, So you know, <laughs> let's <laughs> so, do it. I'm,
3: I'm so, doing. Speaking of that, you were saying how like Roush you go to quite often, and I know Roush charges per passenger, and per
0: there passenger. are
3: some other parks that don't, and right. it's just basically you pay for the vehicle and that's it. What are your thoughts on places charging for the passengers or not? Do you think that's good for the parks, or does, <laughs> does it deter people from wanting to come?
2: I think if you're going to come and have fun and use the facilities and even if you're just a ride along, I think, I think it's fair that you pay a price to come onto the property because these properties are private property and they have to be able to keep the business going. And also they're not your friend. It's, it is a business. So if you show up on their property and you want to ride along, yeah, you got to pay. Now, I don't think you should pay as much as the driver like, and I've never seen a park charge the same amount for a passenger as they do a driver. Also, there's a difference between the upfront cost. So like Roush Creek does like an upfront up cost, and then you get what's called a membership card. But I think the price was like 30 or 40 bucks the upfront cost. But after that, for the rest of the year, it's only like $12 dollars to get onto the property. I think that's fair.
1: Yeah, I like that too. Another question for you as we kind of finish out the segment here. There's a lot more off-roading shows on TV nowadays than there used to be, right? And it's made the sport probably more popular. And so, you know, some of them like Truck Night in America, Alaskan Off-Road Warriors, there's a bunch Mm -hmm. of shows on Motor Trend that have to do with off-roading and four-wheeling and stuff like that. Mm What are your thoughts on stuff like that? Are they overproduced and really don't show off-roading for what it is? Are they too glitz and glammy? Or is there one that kind of is just right that you would recommend somebody watch that? Yeah, that's kind of really what it's like out there.
2: So those shows are a hit and miss for me. What I can't stand is when you get a guy who openly admits that they don't off-road and they're giving sage advice performance trends on what this vehicle can and can't do. And then they're like, oh, this thing is very off-road worthy. You know, stuff like that. I'm like, oh God. So it gets a little cringy for me. But then when I think about it, the mass majority of the people who see those shows, they don't know nothing about off-roading either. And then sometimes you have a hit. Like, I don't know if y'all remember a few years back, Top Gear America had an off-road. I thought that was one of their best shows. When they when Tanner Foust and
0: Adam Ferrara
2: <laughs> uh, took uh, took off to Alaska, I thought that was mm-hmm. hella entertaining
0: because
2: those guys actually knew a little bit of something. Especially uh, what was the guy from North Carolina, Rutledge Wood? Yes, Rutledge Wood. Yeah, he actually knew a little bit of something, something about off roading. So I appreciate when these guys have real authentic moments off road instead of like these staged. Oh, get me going up this hill and a tire off the ground. And then Alaska off-road warriors. I've seen a couple of episodes. My dad's been trying to get me into it. He's like, man, you need to see what they're doing. And I I'm impressed. I'm impressed. Like that's legit. And I'm also a fan of seeing car reviewers hop into the passenger seat of an off-road vehicle and ask, an experienced person about the vehicle and what its capabilities are and all that great stuff. I've seen that a lot. The stuff Motor Trend is doing, I like their car stuff. He takes the vehicles and does a hot lap at Willow Springs. Oh man, I love that. But off-roading, a lot of these series have not hit the mark for me and I don't watch it too much.
1: So Drew, this has been really cool because we've gotten to see a different outlook on off-roading. And like we've said, motorsport is deeper and wider than people realize. There are flavors and colors and different styles within every discipline of motorsport to include off-roading, as you talked about. You got the rock climbers, you got the overlanders, you got the survivalists, et cetera. So this has been a really cool and technical outlook on yet another variation on off-roading. And I'm hoping our audience learned something new today and uh, maybe a newfound interest in a different type of motorsport. So I can't thank you enough for coming on the show.
2: Well, hey, man, thanks for having me. Honestly, I, I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation because it had me think about some things as well. So, but thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: If you like what you've heard and want to learn more about GTM, be sure to check us out on www.gtmotorsports.org. You can also find us on Instagram at Grand Motorsports. Also, if you want to get involved or have suggestions for future shows, you can call or text us at 202-630-1770 or send us an email at crewchief at gtmotorsports.org. We'd love to hear from you.
1: Hey, listeners. Crew Chief Eric here. Do you like what you've seen, heard, and read from GTM? Great, so do we, and we have a lot of fun doing it. But please remember, we're fueled by volunteers and remain a no-annual-fee organization. But we still need help to keep the momentum going so that we can continue to record, write, edit, and broadcast all of your favorite content. So be sure to visit www.patreon.com forward slash GT Motorsports or visit our website and click in the top right corner on the support and donate to learn how you can help.